0: This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 53.
1: The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness, bushcraft,
0: survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 53 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Theresa Emmerich Camper. With a PhD in experimental archaeology and over 25 years of experience in prehistoric skin tanning and clothing construction, Teresa is an internationally recognised specialist in this field. She's an honorary research fellow at the University of Exeter in the UK. Teresa's expertise is far from being purely academic though, her skills and knowledge are eminently practical and in addition to her main area of expertise in tanning technologies and animal processing, which of course is all hands on, Teresa also teaches and demonstrates a wide range of traditional living skills in a variety of settings. Teresa is well known in the bushcraft and traditional living skills communities. Personally, I knew of Teresa and her work for a good few years before I first met her in person, which was at the 2019 Global Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta, Canada. I also got to know her a little bit more on a canoe trip that followed on immediately after the symposium. Teresa's also becoming more widely known due to her television appearances on a number of shows, particularly season eight of History Channels Alone. She was also part of the team of participants on a three-part series, Surviving the Stone Age, on UK's Channel 4, which first aired in the latter part of 2020. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded not long before the release of Surviving the Stone Age and before Teresa had undertaken the filming for Alone. As I'm sure you can imagine, Teresa mentioned nothing to me about the latter whatsoever. But if Teresa is willing, I'm sure a conversation about her experiences will form an interesting round two On my podcast at some point in the future to be honest though i'm really glad we had this conversation before the tv shows came out because what i really wanted to talk about with Teresa was her main area of expertise we also had plenty of time to delve into her childhood her upbringing and other relevant background which is all very interesting and explains the person that she is today in some ways If we'd recorded this later, the TV conversation would likely have crowded out some of what you're about to hear. Now in terms of tanning, personally, I've done only a very small amount. And when I first got involved, I found some of the processes confusing, certainly the way they were explained to me and maybe just being shown do this or do that. I didn't really understand what was going on. And later I found that some people were adamant it had to be done one way, while others had different yet similarly adamant views. Also, I'm aware that beginners are confused by terms such as rawhide and buckskin and what goes into producing those, as well as the seeming plethora of methods such as bark tanning, brain tanning, egg tanning, oil tanning, and so on. So I thought, who better to ask about tanning than Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper? It was a long time after I first tanned the skin that I felt I had even a basic, rudimentary overview of tanning straight in my head and this podcast will get you there much more quickly than I did. Teresa lays everything out very clearly and she certainly added to my knowledge yet again. You'll learn a lot too, I'm sure. Plus, this was an absolute breeze from my perspective. I just had to ask a few questions very simply and let Teresa do the rest. So, please, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper. Well, I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper to my podcast. Hi Teresa, how are you today?
1: I'm great, hi Paul. Good, excellent. Really pleased to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
0: it's wonderful to to have you. I mean, we did actually talk about doing this quite some time ago in in passing last summer and and here we are nearly nearly a year later and um it's wonderful to be able to sit down and, and chat with you. Um, for people who don't know you, Teresa, you are, you are pretty well known in the um, primitive and traditional living skills and bushcraft world and, and increasingly in the experimental archaeology world. But for people who don't know you, Teresa, could you perhaps give us a little bit of a, of a bio of who you are and, and what you do? And then we can maybe jump off from some of that into um, looking at some of those areas in a bit more detail.
1: Sure, Paul. Um, Well, I guess it just starts with I was born in Wyoming in the United States, and I grew up in a place that has rather vast tracts of wilderness and very minimally populated areas. So outdoor living was something that I'd been attracted to since I was a child, and really it was what I was passionate about for my entire life. I think I gathered my first set of edible plants when I was about six <laughs> my dad told me about cattails and I thought oh great that'll be a great idea so I went and dug up some cattail roots at the local cow pond uh <laughs> brought them home and just was chewing on them when he got home he was uh, fairly certain I was going to get salmonella and proceeded to cook them at least he wasn't sure what the heck to do with them from there on out but at least they were sterile <laughs> uh and I continued doing prehistoric skills or traditional living skills, um, all the way through my, my schooling, um, into high school. I did one year of university. Um, and then I actually, (laughs) I actually took off on a canoe trip. I was going to attempt to canoe from Wyoming to the East coast. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, I was survivor living the whole way because when you're 18, you're rather idealistic and you think that that's going to work.
0: We're definitely going um, to get into that story, Teresa, but carry on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, yeah, we can carry on with that a bit later. But yeah, needless to say, uh, I didn't make it to the East Coast. Um ended up going off to university for uh, just that one year. Uh, and then I moved to southwestern Colorado, uh, where I lived without running water or electricity for five years in the southwest Uh, After that, I decided to go back to university. So I went back to university in Durango, Colorado, so at Fort Lewis University or Fort Lewis College, as they say in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Um, and I finished up my undergraduate in anthropology, because Mm -hmm. in the U.S. you don't study archaeology as a discipline on its own at the undergrad level. You instead do anthropology. And within it, it's the four field system. So you have social cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, archaeology, and biological anthropology.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, after I finished that up, uh, I took another couple of years before deciding what it was I wanted to do. I was teaching at a martial arts school during that time. And then I got a, an internship at the Smithsonian Hmm. So I was working in the anthropology department there for about a year. And that's where I learned originally about the experimental archaeology program in the University of Exeter over here in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I made a rather rash decision within two months, um, applied, was accepted, got on a plane. And until one day before I got on the plane, I actually had no place to live in the UK. <laughs> so that was a bit of a wing and a prayer. Had you, um, been, had
0: you been across to the UK or Europe before, or was it literally just jump on a plane and go? It's
1: pretty much jump on a plane. When uh-huh. I was 16, I went to Rome with a church group, hmm. yep. and that was my only experience outside of the US until that time. <laughs> uh, Rome's a pretty yeah. cool place, <laughs> though. <laughs> it is. It's great. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, but it's... I came over for a master's degree, did the master's degree in experimental archaeology, um, and then rather unexpectedly, again, stayed on for a PhD, mm. which I finished up in 2015.
0: Mm-hmm. And was that as painful as many people say PhDs are, or at least the writing up of?
1: Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It was an experience that I would not trade in for anything. However, it's one of the most intense things i've done in my entire life it's pretty stressful and i was self-funded right so i really was sort of nose to the grindstone trying to get it done as fast as humanly possible because you know the pocketbook can only stretch so far
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so were you having to work at the same time to fund that or had you sort of saved up and decided to take however you know three years or however long to to do the phd and just go at it full full pelt
1: no, I was I was working at the same time, mm-hmm. and then also took out loans from the U.S. to cover some of the tuition, as I'm an out-of-country, not even EU student at the time. Oh my I was goodness! Truly really a foreign student. So expensive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, expensive, expensive. Mm-hmm. But it was the time and the place that if it was going to get done, it needed to be then, and it needed to be there. Mm-hmm. So decision made. And just you know, go forward with it. <laughs> yeah,
0: do it, do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a there's a lot for us to jump into there, Teresa. Uh, did you did you start off studying anthropology that year that you did initially before you went off on your little sojourn before ending up in Colorado, or did you start off studying something else?
1: No, I started. I started in anthropology.
0: Okay, so it's it's been a, that area was something that was. Fascinating, right from your teenage years then?
1: Absolutely. I was, you know, the university thing was not something that I in any way, shape or platform planned on going into. I had no interest in university. That's why the fact that I'm now a doctor is actually quite funny for most <laughs> of my family. Um, I, I really wanted to run off and live in the woods. Mm. And eventually, yes, I did for a while, but... <laughs> <laughs>
0: So it sounds like you had quite an encouraging uh, parent and your dad introducing you to cattails and and whatnot. Was it quite an outdoorsy childhood that you had? I mean you said you were in Wyoming but were your family active outdoors people?
1: Yes my dad liked to hunt and fish and hike and uh, he worked for the game and fish so he worked Uh for the wildlife service in Wyoming so I spent you know, a fair amount of time riding around in the the game and fish truck with him when he would go out. He was a biologist, so he would go out to do things like, say, classify the number of antelope fawns, so pronghorn antelope that had been born that year, as that's how they, how they set the number of hunting licenses that are later given out in the fall. So I definitely had an introduction at a very early age to wildlife in general and also just general outdoor sort of camping and hiking fishing hunting um the primitive skills not so much uh that that completely came from from me from my own brain and huh. a wild imagination perhaps
0: <laughs> so I, I you possibly told me this in person but i've sent I, i've certainly read it somewhere that you first brain tanned a hide in your early teens is that right
1: Yes, I I started trying to learn to tan when I was eleven. Right. And I was successful when I was thirteen.
0: Right. It Was a so, very okay. much
1: a trial and error kind of process. <laughs>
0: uh huh. Uh huh. And and was that because there were hides around from your dad hunting, or how how did that spark occur? Or as Absolutely. you say, was it just, was it just was it just wild imagination? So.
1: Um, it, was, it was two things. There was always hides around, but they aren't really what got me started on the wanting to tan. I actually grew up um, in Lander, Wyoming. It's, it's very near to the Wind River Reservation. And I had a number of friends when I was a kid who were Native American. Mm-hmm. And I had been to the powwows and seen their amazing clothing. So really, I just wanted to make a pretty leather dress. <laughs> and I hadn't the slightest idea where you could buy leather. It wasn't the kind of thing that you went to Sears and purchased. Mm. So, you know, people had said, well, you know, my friend's grandmothers used to do this. So I thought, well, all right, no problem. I'll just tan it myself. (laughs) And so began two and a half years of me rotting animal skins in my parents' backyard until I eventually pretty much settled on what I now know to be dry scrape brain tanning
0: right well we, we might as well jump into some of the terminology because um i personally i'm not super experienced in in tanning i've done a little bit but not very not very much like just very inexperienced um and i'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this who maybe have never done any tanning um or hide preparation so let let's sort of start with the basics and then we can kind of build build from from there so what is the basic process that if, you've, if I gave you a deer skin, I'd, I'd shot a fallow deer, for example, I'd skinned it, I gave you the, the skin and said, show me how to do this, Teresa, what would we do?
1: Well, first you'd have to decide what kind of tannage type you would want to use. So there are a number of different ways to tan a skin which give you a very different end product. I'll just very quickly run through them. You've got your vegetable tans. That's mostly what you know from having purses, belts, shoes, that sort of heavy tannage. Mm -hmm. You've got what are called fat tans, under which things like egg tanning, brain tanning, chamois, which uses cod oil, um, those kind of tannage types fall. And then you have mineral tannages, which are what most of your modern tannages are. Most of them are chromium. So chrome tan, chromium-3, or aluminum, there's zinc, there's a whole number of mineral tans. Uh, The only one that's applicable to, not even to prehistory, but to history, is alum tawing, which is not quite aluminum tanning in the sense that uh, alum can wash out. It's not actually a permanent tannage. So... So those are so first you'd have to decide, okay, what do I want to do with this? And if you just want a piece of clothing, so you want it soft, you want it reasonably flexible, you live in a climate that's not wet all the time, then I would go with a fat tan. So that's what most people are familiar with from uh, most of North America into to Mexico and South America, most of the way through well, at least through different parts in Africa. It's used um, all through the steppe region. Um, in in Asia, uh, as well as Japan, all through the Arctic. It's a very, very widespread tannage technology. So it's a soft, fluffy, um, very lightweight, um, very flexible type of tannage. And if we were to go with that, then you would take this, this fresh skin and you would need to deflesh it. Now, defleshing is necessary for every single kind of tannage that you do including making rawhide Mm -hmm. which is that hard product that you make shields out of and windows and uh parfletch and parchment even is a specialized kind of rawhide so step one is deflesh though i would like to back up just a little bit and say that great you've got a skin and you've skinned it but there's a whole host of things that you can do whilst skinning it to make your job later much easier Mm -hmm. and your final product So much nicer. Mm -hmm. And probably the most important thing is put the knife down. (laughs) The knife is really great for opening cuts and for really sticky spots. Fine, get it out to just separate a little bit of membrane here and there. But if you nick the skin, even if you don't create a hole, you create a score, especially for all your fat tans because they take the grain off, those scores open up into holes. So they're a real they're a real problem you can end up with a skin that just looks like your grandma's lace
0: hmm. not leather <laughs> mm-hmm. so <laughs> get get your fingers in there get your fist in there and
1: exactly yeah. it's called pulling a hide but mm-hmm. yeah you just you beat it off with your fingertips and your and your fists and when we're talking about deer it's actually quite easy mm. you know, once you get the initial cuts made and pull the legs down a bit you can just hang your weight on it and it'll peel right off yeah So after defleshing, or sorry, after skinning, then you're going to deflesh. Now, there's two ways to deflesh. Well, there's a million ways to deflesh, but there are two main ways to deflesh. You either put it over a beam, and you use a beaming tool, which is like a a straight bar of metal or a bone, and the skin is pinned between the beam and your tool, and you're separating the membrane, the flesh, and the meat uh, at sort of the, the basement membrane so that connection point between the subcutaneous tissue and the actual dermis so the fiber layer structure of the skin Um, the other one is to put it in a frame and then in a frame you can do it two ways you can use a toothed tool which can be bone or it could be stone it doesn't matter actually for defleshing and whilst the skin is still wet you can scrape all of that tissue off including the membrane the membrane is really important to remove it's not just meat and fat um, or you can allow the skin to dry in the frame, and I do mean drum tight. It's not the kind of thing where you can um, let it dry and then let it get a little bit damp at night and then let it dry again because it gets really wrinkly and it becomes very difficult to work in the frame. It needs to be like like a drum, that sort of tightness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could use stone tools or metal tools. It needs to be a sharp tool at this point to shave the um membrane the the meat and the fat off
0: is that where you <laughs> see the semicircular or curved blades being used is that that yes. circumstance yeah
1: yeah absolutely you see you see a number of types uh, most of them fall into straight scrapers
0: mm-hmm.
1: or angled scrapers so ones that look like an l that have that sort of curved blade on the end of them
0: right so this or, would be more sort of like a little ads type thing um yes that's, that's a very good yep mm-hmm
1: yeah but just with a very it has a steep edge angle on it yes
0: yeah which in itself would have possibly been made from an antler is that right i've seen some examples like that with a a, a stone tool attached to it
1: correct the blade would need to be stone neither antler nor bone can carry the edge for long enough when a skin is dry to really do an adequate job Mm -hmm. so once you have it defleshed then for fat tans you your next choice is do you tan it with the grain on or the grain off now the grain layer is that shiny surface that you see on your belt or your handbag um, whereas if you were looking at chamois which is that kind of yellowish soft fluffy leather that you use to wash your car with yep. that doesn't have that surface it's actually been removed so for most fat tans that layer is removed It's very difficult to get good oil penetration through the grain layer. Its fiber structure is much tighter and finer and therefore much denser. So it impedes good oil or dressing penetration through the majority of the the rest of the dermis. Mm -hmm. So if you remove it, it is easier to to tan. However, you don't have to. There are such things as grain-on tans. They exist archaeologically, Mm -hmm. they exist ethnographically, and they exist within... The communities of craft practice today who are still tanning, tanning skins.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So were you to make the choice to remove it, then you again have two ways to do that. If it's still wet and you have it on a beam, then you just simply flip it over, put it back on the beam and you scrape hard <laughs> the <laughs> other side. And it will separate uh the mid dermal junction so that's the junction between the grain layer and the mid dermis um, or if it's on the, the frame and it's dried then again you take that sharp tool and you literally shave off the grain and the hair
0: right
1: all step. yeah
0: right so so that's on the outside of the skin and you would have to remove the fur or the hair to to do that style of tanning
1: Correct. Right. Correct. Now, you have to remove, if you decide to take the grain off to do a fat tan, then you have to remove the hair and the grain. Mm. If you choose to do it as a hair on fat tan, you don't have to. You can certainly tan furs as a fat tan. Um, I don't recommend that people do deer with the hair on. They're pretty, but deer have a hollow hair, and they just break off all the time, and they get everywhere. Yeah. Not that you can't do it, and it's not that they don't make a nice fur, it's just that with most people's more modern lifestyle they're not always the ideal thing to tan with the hair on
0: no i mean i've 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 had experience on of sleeping on reindeer skins um that were tanned by sami and yeah you just you're just picking hairs out of your stuff forever after that so yeah
1: yeah definitely woken up with them where they've managed to weave themselves inside your eyelashes. How how is it there?
0: (laughs) That's quite incredible. But
1: yeah, I mean, as long as you stay away from the deer family, any other family, pretty much on the face of the (laughs) planet, have solid hair shafts. Mm -hmm. And this means that the hair is much more robust. It can deal with a lot more abrasion before it breaks off. Right. So it's longer lasting and just more worth all your effort because it is hard to tan things with the hair on because you're not removing the grain layer. You have to work much harder to get good oil penetration and they never come out quite as soft simply because the grain layer, in addition to being finer and denser, it doesn't stretch as much as the mid-dermal layer. Mm. So when you're softening it, you can't you can't stretch it as hard as you could had you removed it.
0: Yeah, so, so the, you'd really want to be taking advantage of the fur if you wanted to keep the fur on that would be the main reason for doing that like fox fur or wolverine or, or something like that where you've got some qualities of the fur that you really want to have in your clothing as a ruff or or what have you or a hat or something like that presumably
1: absolutely if, you, if it's aesthetic you like the way it looks or you're in an environment where you need that level of thermally effective clothing that it needs to be fur then yes, you'd definitely be taking advantage of that. And you'll notice that most things that are classic hair-on animals, they tend to have quite thin skins. Um, The thicker the fur, the thinner the skin. This is just a general rule. And what's interesting is it even goes through families, like take red fox, for example. If you were to skin a red fox from the Netherlands or from the southern part of the UK and tan it, um, and then compare it to one that had been taken from one of the more northern climates, you know, Siberia or northern Canada, the dermal thickness is significantly different. The farther north you go, the thinner the skin
0: is. Hmm, interesting. Slightly counterintuitive at first, but then, yeah, if you think about the fur being thicker, then I guess that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, obviously, this doesn't this doesn't apply to things like pinnipeds, so seal and some of those, they rely on blubber, not fur. Mm-hmm. For their warmth so their their skin doesn't follow the same rule but um, for things that rely on their fur for warmth this does tend to be something you see and which is great for us because the thinner the skin the easier it is to tan to a point Uh yeah eventually you get into things like uh, rabbits or arctic fox are notorious they have such such thin skins that they're so delicate they're actually quite difficult to tan right right
0: because um, well rabbits rabbit skin blankets was was definitely a thing wasn't it and presumably that's a lot of work then given what you're saying that it's it's actually fiddly or, or you have to be careful that if the skins are delicate
1: yes absolutely now uh, when you hear about rabbit skin blankets one of the things that you know, a lot of that information is coming out of the u.s mm. and the rabbits there are not the same kind of rabbit no. that we have over here in the eu so the ancestor of the domestic rabbit is the European rabbit. They have a slightly thicker skin. They, you can tan them. They're, they tend to come out kind of papery. They're really kind of annoying. They vegetable tan just fine. They just don't fat tan particularly easily. Um, the stuff that we hear about in the US that are rabbit skin blankets, uh, they're not tanned. They're actually raw skins. And they were, instead of tanning them, they were cutting them as a spiral. So if you imagine taking uh, the rabbit skin off, like taking a sock inside out, like taking a sock off inside out. Yeah. It's called case skinning. Yeah. Yeah. And then were you to cut uh, a strip in a spiral all the way around the skin, say a strip about um, maybe a half an inch wide. So, gosh, uh, about a centimeter, Mm -hmm. a centimeter wide. And then they would wrap that. Around cordage, you know, fine string, um, and let it dry. So you've got this furry rope, and then these furry these furry strings were then twined together, like twining a basket, and that was your blanket. Right. So it did not rely at all on the dermal integrity of the rabbit skin. Actually, what was holding it together were <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of yards of dogbane or milkweed or nettle cordage.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah, they're a fantastic product. It's just such an interesting way to get around um what would otherwise be a weakness in this particular resource. And they've found a way to make it into something rather exceptional to say mm. the least. They're mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah, cuz it's lovely soft fur, isn't it? Rabbit fur.
1: It is, absolutely. Yeah. And in this case, the, the dermis is so thin that the fact that it's rawhide doesn't matter at all. It's just not—it's not thick enough to be stiff.
0: Right. <laughs> Fascinating. I feel like I threw you off course a little bit there, Teresa. But um...
1: no worries. I can come back to it. Come back <laughs> to the tanning. So at this point, we've degrained the skin. So we now have, uh, in essence, we have a, a hide split, a suede. So you only have the middermal layer left. Now this is the point at which you're actually going to, to tan the skin, the actual chemistry would happen. Mm -hmm. Now there is one more step in here that you can take. You don't have to. Um, and that is alkalining. Now introducing a skin to an alkaline solution does two things. One, it makes the hair fall out, but that's, that's, unless you're bark tanning or vegetable tanning or doing a grain on fat tan, in which case you want the hair to fall out without damaging the grain, then you do want to to use either this method or another. So let me just let me just con- make that into a step in and of itself actually. So if you want to be doing vegetable tanning or a grain on fat tan, you need to make the hair fall out. There are essentially two ways to do this. One is stinky. One is not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stinky version is. You simply wet the skin, make sure you get the hair wet, um, and then allow it to rot for two or three days. You've got to keep testing it, and eventually the bacterial activity will degrade the the ground substance that sits at the base of each hair follicle, and the hair will fall out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you can just, it needs to fall out in the way that you can just push it off with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, done, I've done
0: the stinky drink. version. <laughs>
1: yes. I think a lot of people have done the stinky version. I've definitely done the stinky version.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> however, if you don't want the stinky version, you simply put the skin, after it's been defleshed, into a solution that is alkaline. So you want that, the pH to be somewhere between 11 and 13. And there's a number of ways to do this. The old-school way is you just mix wood ashes with water, plain and mm-hmm. simple. Now, that will give you a solution made of potassium hydroxide, KOH. That is the actual the chemical that's in that compound that makes this happen. Um, or you can use lye, which in the UK is caustic soda, so sodium hydroxide. Or you can use lime, which is calcium hydroxide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like lime. Now, lots of people use it and they love it, and that's great. Uh, I don't like the necessary extra steps of rinsing to make sure that you don't get any solid precipitates that come out of your lime solution sitting between the fibers of the skin. You have to make sure that's all out, otherwise your softening process will be a nightmare. Um, so if I if I have my choice, I like to use KOH as a pure chemical. You can just buy it at most um, feed stores, things like that. Um, If you want to use wood ashes, that's great. I would suggest that you mix a big old five-gallon bucket of wood ashes and water together. Um, Let it sit, stir it every 20 minutes, and do that for about three hours. And then let it settle. And then just pour the clear water off from the top. That way you get a nice, clean alkaline solution, which you can then add more water to, to, to bring the pH down a little bit because you can get phs of 14 with wood ashes it can be really strong hmm. um and that way you don't turn all your hides gray and okay. if you don't care about your hides being gray then just mix it in with the wood ashes fine no problem yeah.
0: but are there any particular species or types of wood that work better hardwoods softwoods um does it matter
1: it, for this purpose no right. if you talk to people who make soap then they tend to have some much hold much stronger opinions on types of wood and the types of uh, KOH that they, they produce. but yep. all wood ash is KOH. KOH pretty much by definition is what produces soft soaps, not hard soaps. When you want to do hard soaps, you're talking about sodium hydroxide so lye. right. So however, yeah, like I say, people who are into soap they, they have their preferred species and that's great. For what I do, it's it's very unimportant. Ash is ash.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good to know.
1: Yep, and it is ash, not charcoal. Charcoal <laughs> doesn't do you any good. Just ash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after after you introduce this, so you end up tossing your skin in this this solution. Uh, it takes forty eight to seventy two hours, most of the time, to have the hair start falling out. However long as the solution stays long and strong enough you can leave it in there for absolutely ages i've left skins in koh solutions for over a month with no problem okay it so doesn't stop, it. it
0: sort of stops them from rotting as it well. does
1: yeah. yeah unless you end up with some sort of extremophile bacteria in there that can deal with a you know a ph of 12 and a half then nothing is happening
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um at this point what you, you, the hair will be falling out. The hair should be falling out, and if so, then great. When you're doing that grain on or that vegetable tan, um, that hair falling out is one of the things you're actually looking for. Um, however, the real main the main reason that you use these alkaline solutions, and also the rotting does the same thing. Um, it's to break down what's called the ground substance, which is its interfibrillary proteins, mucus and um, some sugars that just sit in between the fibers of the skin. And what this does in the animal's life, or in your life, because it's in between all the fibers of your skin as well, is that it regulates how much water comes and goes from your skin. It's essentially what makes you able to sit in a bathtub without turning into a prune within two seconds.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. But in the case of tanning, we want to remove quite a lot of that because it actually impedes us being able to introduce a dressing solution into the skin because it's hydrophobic so it repels the water
2: mm-hmm.
1: so if you're making rawhide then you want to leave this stuff intact if you can because it makes your rawhide that much more water resistant however for all of our tannage types we want to remove quite a lot of it so that when we introduce our our dressing solutions, so the tanning solutions that they have some place to go. We need an empty fiber structure into which to place these or force them through in the case of fat tanning. So after you've pulled this out of the alkaline solution, you then neutralize it. You can neutralize it using a little bit of vinegar and water, or you can just put it in fresh water and change the water two or three times. You'll know it's neutral when it goes back to being slinky. And when you pull on it, it stretches and stays stretched. When it's alkaline, when it's swollen, it'll bounce like a rubber band and it will be kind of a yellowish color and much, much thicker. It'll be incredibly unpleasant, actually, to work with. Um, <laughs> so alkalining is... Some people like it, some people don't. Uh, it's just a little bit more about where you want to put your effort and your time in. Okay? Mm-hmm. You can certainly you can certainly tan skins without doing the alkalining stage. Um at which point, all right, so we've got this neutralized. We're going to toss it back on the beam. I do mostly wet scrape these days. It's much more it's more time efficient in the type of environment that that we live in here in the UK. Trying to do dry scrape here is a nightmare unless you happen to have, well, you know, a couple of weeks like the last couple we've had. Great. You yeah. can definitely dry scrape in those that conduct that conditions. But most of the time you need an indoor shed or something right, right. It needs to be heated. Yeah. Fairly,
0: fairly dry, non-humid environment.
1: Yes, definitely necessary. So now we're going to introduce our dressing solution. So most people who do dry scrape, you can rub it right into the skin on the frame without taking it out if you choose. It's not the most efficient way to get good dressing penetration, but it can be done, of course. Uh, Most people take it out of the frame, and then you put it in the bucket with the dressing solution. So for a fat tan, this is the part where... There's all sorts of different things you can use. You can use egg yolks. The egg white is superfluous. You don't need it. Actually, it's kind of gums things up. Get rid of it. Or make some meringue, you know, <laughs> uh, if you're so make, inclined to. Make
0: a, make a pavlova or something.
1: Yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> or, okay, the cl- other oh, classic is brains. Um, in sort of the steppe regions, uh, Mongolia um, and Kazakhstan, some of these areas, they're using sour milk, soured milk. Mm. Uh, there's a number of marine mammal oils, which work as well. And then a lot of sort of modern brain tanners are actually using lecithin, which is just a fatty acid. It's something that is gets put in chocolate a lot. It makes things smooth. It's one of the major components in brains. Right. Yep. Okay, what all these have in common is that these are all self emulsifying oils. So when they are mixed in water, they're a fatty acid that stays in solution. They don't separate out. Right. This is an indication that, that it's the correct type of lipid where it's going to oxidize at a temperature that's not so hot that the skin would melt but not so low that it oxidizes before it's really even introduced into the skin the minute it hits the air. So it's kind of the sweet spot.
2: Mm.
1: So after you've made solutions and I won't get too into depth with the, the solutions. I mean, if people are really into that, there's loads of recipes all over the internet. Um, then you mix up a solution, say, from your egg yolks. You mix up a solution from your brains. And when I say solutions, I don't mean gravy consistency. When we're talking grain-off deer skins, you're talking about a bucket of water with probably about a gallon of water in it, so about four liters. Uh, And you want that water and that solution to be hot. You want to be able to hold your hand in it for 10 seconds without burning yourself. That's important. The warmth really helps distribute the oils evenly. you don't want it so hot that you can't hold your hand in it If it's so hot that you can't hold your hand in it then the skin you're working with uh will shrink so this is probably the point where you you mentioned the the old rule which is you can't do anything to the skin you're tanning that you can't do to the skin you're wearing right (laughs) yes (laughs) Other than put it in the freezer, that's cool. You can put it in the freezer.
0: And what And what about this this thing that gets bandied around a lot that's sort of stated as a rule that every animal has a brain big enough to tan its own hide? <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> you could say in general that that's essentially true, but something like a deer has enough brains, if you add just a little bit of extra fat to it, to do two, two right. deer skins. Yeah, it's more about you making sure that you get all that ground substance out and that you introduce your dressing solutions in the most efficient way possible uh, at which point you can stretch your brains quite a lot
0: stretching okay. our brains is always good
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we like to think we do it in academia but that depends <laughs> on the day really
0: cool so we've got our we've got our solution what do we do next
1: So you've put the skin in it, and one of the reasons I I recommend that people membrane their skin, so you toss it back on the beam, and you're going to go over the flesh side, so the side that was facing the animal, one more time. You're trying to squeegee out as much water as you can, so that when you start pulling on it, the ideal moisture level for you to then introduce that skin into its dressing solution is about 20% moisture content. Now, at 20% moisture content, you know, without having, you know, a moisture content reader or something ridiculous around, uh, when you pull on the fibers, the skin will go white. It's simply the moisture being low enough that the light is refracting differently when it hits the skin. Mm -hmm. But it's your indication that that skin is just at the right stage, that it will really soak up that dressing solution like a sponge. So... My example is always, if you have a dry sponge and you chuck it in water, it takes ages to suck the water up. If you have a sopping wet sponge and you toss it in, it's not sucking anything up either. Right. However, yeah. if you bring it out to as, you know, as, as dry as you can wring it out to and then toss it in the solution, well, then physics is doing part of the work for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in it goes, wash it around like dirty laundry. You just really work it in the solution. Um And then I normally have people leave it for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Oftentimes we go have lunch quickly at this point. Uh, And then you're going to come back and you're going to pull it out, hand wring as much of the solution into the water as you can. And then you can do the towel stomping method or the ringing with a stick method. Or if you have one of the old school, oh, what are they called over here? A mangle. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the rolling deal for laundry. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you're just trying to squeegee out. Uh, as much of the water as you can and then open it back up so that, that it goes nice and white again mm-hmm. and then back in the solution again right. and at this point if you have followed all of the steps and you've really done your pre-process as well so you're degraining your are membraning you defleshing you're getting rid of the ground substance all of those things uh, and you have it at the right um, make sure that it's neutral or possibly a little bit acidic before it goes in these solutions, you should only need two dressing cycles. And sometimes with thinner skins, you can easily get away with one. So none of this like epic having to ring it five times. If you want to skip all of your pre-processes, then you need to ring it and dunk it five or six times. And then it will still come out soft. So again, it's just a matter of where you put your time and effort in.
0: Mm. But your your personal view is to spend the time on the pre-prepping and not so much on the, The later cycles with a solution
1: yes that's my preference Mm -hmm. there are people who disagree and they really like to ring and Mm -hmm. that's great i hate ringing (laughs) i don't think actually i I, I say that i'm actually not sure i know a a tanner who likes ringing hides i don't think anybody says that (laughs) (laughs) now once you've got it in this solution what you're going to do is just hand ring it out um, I don't like to wring my skins all the way to as dry as they can go after I've put them in the solution for the second for the last time, simply because then they have wet spots and dry spots. It's really difficult to wring evenly um, with the stick method or any other method.
0: And, and for people so, who don't know, the stick method is basically where you twist it up and then double it over and stick a stick in the hoop and then twist it. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. If you you put stick ringing hides into the internet, Google will will be your friend. Mm. Or you know, hide donut. Hide <laughs> That's donut. <another> one. You'll <laughs> you'll find what you need. And it's not something that, as a description, is going to be very useful. Find a video. Mm. Even when you have someone show you in real life, you kind of think, ah, uh, wow. Can you show me that one more time? <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I don't I don't prefer to do that. I prefer to hand ring them. So just squeegee them out with my hands back into the bucket as best i can and then i will either just hang them up to air dry to the point where i want to start working them soft and keep turning them on the line because obviously gravity works and the water does drain to the edges and you don't want one half of your skin much drier than the than the side that's been hanging downward Mm -hmm. so you want to keep going with it yeah
0: And are you you hanging that under so you're out if you're outside would that be would it need to be undercover um just like hanging washing out on the line on a on a does it need to be in the shade but breezy does it matter if it gets sun on it does it
1: It does not matter if it gets sun on it especially not up here i mean if i'm in teaching in israel then yeah okay sometimes we have to think about how much sun is okay but there is never too much sun in the uk fair enough (laughs) 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 <laughs> Although, I'm, like, I have to say that, but like last week, was it was close. I was actually tanning sheepskins, and sheep are very, very greasy. They have a tendency to do something called grease burn, um, which is made significantly worse by putting them in the sun. So, right. you have to be a little bit careful with those guys, but mm. deer, not a problem.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, people listen to this podcast all over the place, so it's probably worth us mentioning mentioning that we've even got listeners in Australia so they get plenty of sun down there not this time of year, perhaps, but uh, yeah
1: so with with most of your non greasy animals yeah the sun is not a problem you do want to be careful that it doesn't dry too fast though you really do have to monitor it I mean if you live in the outback in Australia don't hang it on the line then go inside for two hours and expect (laughs) it to be okay when you come back out
0: (laughs) and so so what what would characterize drying it too fast
1: um, to the point where your all your thin areas, so the armpits, the little axial zones, the armpits um, and the belly skin, start going crinkly. Like, it will sound like paper. If they've gone to that point, just save yourself the trouble, put it back in the dressing solution and start over.
0: Right. So it's not the end of the world. You're just you just setting oh, yourself back.
1: Yes, exactly. There's no such thing as a ruined hide unless you cook it. Right. That's, heat is pretty much the one way you can really ruin a skin. So, otherwise, uh, there's a million and one ways to fix almost every problem that you run into. Right. A- apart from maybe you putting a whole lot of holes in a hide. But, yeah, holes can also be sewn up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you about holes, actually, in the context of um stringing the, the hide on a frame. I've seen plenty of pictures of people putting holes in them to put the strings through i mean is there a way around that at all
1: nope (laughs) unless uh, i shouldn't say that there are there are ways to mitigate it like you can use little s hooks where you have to put very tiny holes in the edges or you can use clamps but really the amount of force you're going to be putting into that skin once it's on the frame i can't think of any clamps that would deal with that Mm.
0: And it's also getting a little bit away from the sticking with the traditional way of doing it then as well, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. But, you know, at the same time, there's – I don't ever want people to feel like they don't want to try tanging a skin because they're not doing it stone age enough. Right. The process itself is traditional. You know, the chemistry is traditional. If you're using metal tools, who cares? You know, learn to tan a skin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Learn to tan it however you mm-hmm. can, you know, using whatever tools and whatever methods you have at your disposal. And then if you want to take a step back in time at some point and start using um, tools that are more applicable to prehistory, then great. But, you know, when I teach courses, which I do, I teach courses all over, all over the world at this point, um, we use metal tools. It's about learning a process, yes. not about um replicating um prehistory
0: yeah because how far do you go do you have to then if if you go down the route of of stipulating that you have to do it with stone tools do you have to go and find the do you have to nap those yourself or do you have to actually go and quarry them yourself do you have to go and hunt the animal with primitive tools i mean you, you could take it to the nth degree and go down a ridiculous wormhole there couldn't you
1: oh you absolutely can and sometimes it's kind of fun you know every once in a while you run into somebody who says i want to learn how to tan a skin with the bare minimum of anything. And the one thing that nobody ever thinks about is like, guess what the bare minimum of anything is? No containers. Mm. So unless you have a creek, you're not soaking. <laughs> uh, everything gets done um, with basically nothing to put the skin in. So uh, it can be done. It was done. Tanning goes back uh, an incredibly into incredibly deep history. We have stone tools from places like uh, Atapuerca in uh, Grandolina. In, it's an archaeological site in Spain. And some of the use analysis has showed that some of these stone tools, the use so that's the striations, the scratches on the edges of the stone that have been microscopically matched up to modern stone tools that have been used for the same thing, and the, the use wear matches. So that's how we come up with a use an idea of what use looks like. Those that useware uh, matches hide working. Mm. Now we don't know what kind of hide working, and honestly, uh, some of the useware studies suffer a little bit from being done by people who perhaps don't have a huge amount of practical experience with with tanning itself. But these stone tools were probably used on hide. Now, what's fun about this is this is Heidelbergensis. This is seven hundred and eighty thousand years ago these aren't even modern humans Mm. so yeah this this particular skill is very much not just part of our species but part of our family you know the hominid family Mm -hmm. yep
0: fascinating we'll we'll jump back to the experimental archaeology and matching use wear and where all that stuff shortly um because there's i've got a few questions about that so that's that will be nice segue to to loop back to that but um sure,
1: let's sh- finish shall we f- let's, process, finish our then, skin
0: yeah? first shall we so.
1: absolutely okay yeah. so we've now come out of the tanning solution and you're ready to soften you're, you're basically at the final stage of fat tanning yay this is Whoa. the magic stage so <laughs> What you're essentially going to do is as soon as that skin gets again to that 20% moisture content, so you're going to start pulling it, moving the fibers, and that skin will go white. And once it's white all over, now you're in for your work. Now you need to continually manipulate those fibers of the skin, moving them back and forth. You can use a cable, which is a a piece of metal cable strung between two things that you can drag it over. Uh, You can use a staking post, which could be wood, it could be metal, it could be bone, whatever that you work the skin over the top of, anything to keep the fibers moving. Um, if you're using a frame, then people use canoe paddles. They use the back end of an axe uh, handle, uh, anything that you can push into the skin and drag along it. Uh, and you continually do this until the skin is completely dry. And you can test it's dry by putting it on your face. If it feels cool, it's not dry yet. hmm I, I promise you halfway through this process, your hands will not be able to tell if it's wet or dry anymore. <laughs> so yeah, and it's it's always oh, it's the most depressing thing in the world to have a student say, Oh, my skin is dry, and put it down and you not double check, and you come back in twenty or thirty minutes and it wasn't all the way dry, and now it's got stiff spots. It's not like the whole thing is going to go stiff, but you'll get stiff spots. But if you do this process, well, Uh, you will end up with incredibly soft, fluffy, lovely uh, fat tan, Mm -hmm. which is windproof. Uh, It doesn't wick. It holds dead air space, which makes it quite thermally effective. It has a few downsides. One of the things is that it takes a dang long time to dry out after it's gotten wet. So it's not actually ideal in some of our northern European climates. And it stretches quite a lot. So you need to know quite a bit about... Um, sewing, about constructing clothing in order to make things out of it that stay put so that you don't end up with trousers with a saggy arse or knees <laughs> or, you know, shirts where one arm ends up way longer than the other, those kinds of things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the very last step that you would do most of the time with fat tan skins, you don't have to, if you never plan on getting it wet, then, you know, be my guest, don't smoke it. Mm-hmm. But I do highly recommend... That people smoke their buckskin.
0: That was my next question on my list here. What does smoking do? So, <laughs> perfect.
1: <laughs> okay. So, in order to explain what smoking does, I probably have to explain what the oils do, the lipids that you've introduced. So, prepare for chemistry. I'm sorry. I'll keep it reasonably succinct. Um, so, when you introduce these lipids, they oxidize. When they oxidize, they become aldehydic compounds. These aldehydic compounds They don't actually combine with the collagen, which is what the fiber structure of the skin is made out of. They actually combine with themselves. So they essentially build a cage called a polymer matrix around the outside of each of the fibers of the skin. Now, they then repel water from the actual fiber structure of the skin. But at the same time, fat, tan skin can hold 800 percent water, but it's holding it in between the fibers so in the spaces between them so it is a hydrophobic and hydrophilic tannage type at the same time and it's the only one that's like that it's very special <laughs>
0: hmm. interesting
1: yes so what you do when you introduce smoke the smoke introduces a couple of things one is acrolein and acrolein is the compound that's actually going to essentially it makes that polymer matrix more permanent It makes it uh, attached to each other more strongly, so the molecular bonds are stronger, uh, so that if you do wash your buckskin, you're not washing out a certain percentage of your fats. Anything that didn't actually bond to itself could then be washed out, and that's why it's slightly harder to soften white buckskin again than it is smoked buckskin. Now, there is this idea that white buckskin is useless, that if you get it wet, it goes back to being rawhide. If you have done your buckskin your your fat tanned skins correctly and done them well that is absolutely not the case they have between 30 and 40% of the lipids the oils that were put in there are bonded to each other they do not come out however if you smoke it then you tend to get rates that are more up in the you know sort of the 60-70% range uh, at which point you can really toss your smoked buckskins in the washing machine not with detergent. <laughs> Don't put it in with detergent. But you can use soft soap. You can. I tend to use ladies' body wash, the stuff that says moisturizing on it. You end up coming out smelling like smoky flowers, but that's all right.
0: <laughs> it could be worse.
1: Yeah, it could be worse. I mean, if you've been in buckskins for four or five weeks out in the woods, and I guarantee you, there could be worse. Yeah. Um, right. So that's what smoking does. It adds that acrolein. Now, the color that you get from smoking has nothing to do with the chemistry. None nothing at all. That happens it's just a byproduct of tar in the smoke. Right. So we love the color it gives and different temperatures of smoke give different colours. Different woods give different colours, though it's a little bit of a I think we we all have this we have this internal debate in the tanning community as to whether it's actually the type of wood or the temperature at which the wood burns that changes your colour. Mm. <laughs> but whichever it is i guess it could also
0: it could also be the temperature of the smoke when it touches the reaches the skin as well
1: yes that uh, sorry when i say temperature yes i do mean the temperature of the smoke Mm -hmm. so however you know cold smoking you can smoke things cold you can smoke things warm uh hot is a misnomer if you can't hold your hand in there you're again going to cook your skin (laughs) right so you know make sure you keep testing your smoke
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you what, don't what, once question there once those lipids have polymerized can the heat sort of melt them i know that's a bit of a, a kind of layman's question but is, is, is are they kind of solid there or would heat sort of uh, mobilize those lipids again potentially
1: anything that's actually bonded should not mobilize with heat if it right. gets hot enough that you're starting to break the molecular bonds apart then i'm can almost guarantee you you're going to cook your skin because mm-hmm. Uh, all of your fat tans—they only have a what's called a shrinkage temperature. So different tannage types have different shrinkage temperatures. So that's the temperature at which the collagen molecule shrinks and gets fatter instead of longer. So you're actually unraveling the collagen strands from right. themselves.
2: Okay. Yeah,
1: uh, which is heat damage. If you do it, if you do it too much, it's it's it is damaged. You cannot bring it back from that. However, if you cool fat tans down fairly quickly. Uh, Sometimes they will, they're the only tannage type that will realign their collagen fibers. (laughs)
0: Nice.
1: Yes, so sometimes you can pull them back without losing the structural integrity of the skin. But that gets very specialist, and uh, unless you're wanting to, I don't know, heat form some sort of product, then it's not really uh, a characteristic that's that important for most home tanners.
0: So so what would the do's and don'ts of, of smoking be then so that they, they're successful with that stage?
1: Uh, okay, so uh, the thing I would say is that just stay away from that old thing where you dig a pit in the ground and then you just kind of tack the skin around it. Uh, it just has so much potential for you to cook your skin,
2: mm-hmm.
1: especially if you've not done it very often. You know, borrow a friend's stove or or get two metal buckets, one that fits inside of the other. Yeah, and then the one is much shorter than the other one. You put all of your coals. You don't want burning wood. You want coals. And it's great if you use punky wood, so half rotten wood. It's just another way of mitigating the the chance of flare-ups. You just don't want flames. No flames. Flames are bad. We want lots of smoke. So do everything that you've been told not to do when starting a fire, pretty much. (laughs) with uh, the exception being don't put green wood on it. Right. Uh, green wood is full of full of moisture. You don't really want to be introducing a bunch of moisture into your white brain tan, whether that's in the form of, you know, sticking it back in a bucket or steaming it. Also, wet skin shrinks at a lower temperature than dry skin. So again, you're, you're increasing your risk of damaging your collagen structure. So, yeah. Keep your coals contained in a small space. Keep the temperature fairly low. Keep lots of smoke. So essentially you want to keep um, smothering your coals to some degree. Um, and it's a little bit of a balancing act of getting enough oxygen in there and enough punky fuel in there that the coals keep going and keep producing smoke, mm-hmm. but don't burn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, don't feel bad keeping a spray bottle around. If you do need a spray bottle to just you know quickly spray down your punk once in a while because it wants to flare up, that's fine. That's a very small amount of water it's It's quite different in quantity from putting in green wood, yeah, yeah makes sense yeah, so yeah, the more smoke, the better uh you can you can smoke in a smoke house, which is passive smoking, so the smoke just kind of filters around the skins hanging in their little house, and that's great. If you do that a little bit a your- little bit like
0: how you'd maybe smoke fish.
1: Yes, exactly like right. you would smoke fish, but mm-hmm. cold smoke fish. You don't again. You don't really want hot smoke in yeah, there.
0: Yeah, understood. Um, okay.
1: Uh, that's going to take you quite a while. Um, most people who smoke in smokehouses for skins, twelve hours is pretty much the minimum. A lot of people smoke for upwards of two days mm. to get really good, even color. Now, the chemistry. This is this is worth saying here. Is the chemistry happens long before the color happens. So. Just because you don't have a dark color does not mean your skin isn't well enough smoked. The color is aesthetic. Now, the other way to smoke is where you sew the skin or skins up, you can do two or three at a time if you so choose, into a bag. And then you put a skirt on it, so an old piece of leather or material. If you use material, Use a natural fiber. Please don't use polyester because if it gets hot, it's going to melt onto you or the skin, one of the two. Yeah. I've, I've had both hot happen. It's unpleasant, I promise. Yeah. Um, and you want it thick and dense. You want it tight enough that you don't get a lot of um, air coming through the skirting because that really messes with the draw from either your stove or your pit in the ground or your double buckets. There's a million and one ways to, to do this type of bag method. So you're uh, sort anyway, of making
0: like a little chimney with the with the hides in. Is that? Am I getting the right uh, picture there? Because I've not I've not seen quite this method before. I don't think.
1: Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. You are. You're basically making a big balloon, right? With the hides, and they become the chimney. Yes. Okay. So usually you see this method. Most people do this off of a stove, but not everyone. You know, you can certainly do it over the buckets. Um. And then the skirting goes either around that. Uh, outer bucket so if you have two buckets that are metal and you have the small one inside that's got all the coals in it and the punky wood then you put your skirting around the larger taller bucket yeah, so that your skirting isn't actually getting hot it's just a way to thermally insulate from the coals um, or you put it around your stove pipe um, and then yeah out comes the smoke it goes up the skirt and into the skins okay. and i recommend when people do this if you get lots of good dense smoke you do probably 30 to 40 minutes on one side then most people turn it inside out and do the other side as well now with this method the chemistry happens in about 20 minutes it's done you don't have to smoke any further
0: that's nice and quick
1: (laughs) yes quite however Mm. i always recommend just just smoke it longer you're already there you might as well get the nice color while you're at it for two reasons um one People are more confident with their brain tans if they're darker because there's still this correlation between well smoked and the color, even though it, it's not really, it's not actually real. Um, two, they look clean for much longer.
0: <laughs>
1: White buckskin gets grubby so fast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, diff- different story, but we had some. Um, white smocks made for some northern forest trips fentile smocks and they just got dirty even in the snow in the you know because (laughs) you use because you're using a wood burning stove and you're carrying you know you're carrying bits of um pine and you get you get resin on it and it just looked absolutely filthy after a couple of weeks in the woods and so when we got some that was a prototype and then we got some more made and we had them made in dark green because they don't look dirty
1: <laughs> precisely absolutely <laughs> absolutely and, and that being said you know with your fat tans you know do, they don't have to stay the color that they they come out of the smoke either you no. can dye them whatever you want
2: mm-hmm.
1: they're a, they're a protein based you know collagen is protein so any kind of dye that works well on protein based things say like silk or wool uh, will likely work on brain tan will likely work on buckskin now Now, obviously you can't put it in a hot dye solution so try and pick the ones that don't require heat (laughs) Mm.
0: now dyes natural dyes to me are a bit of a dark art you know i've seen some really quite remarkable colors come from quite dull you know lichens for example i mean that is that something you know much about have you done much of that type of stuff
1: um in relation to to buckskin yes i've done quite a bit of dyeing um i've used all of your normal ones like woad and indigo although we shouldn't really separate those they're both indigotten uh, right. people in the dyeing industry get you know really uppity about woad is one thing and indigo is another but at the end of the day they have the same chemical in them it's indigotten right. gives a blue um there are lichens yes that give bright reds blues and yellows mm. so there's some great colors there uh black can easily be done by putting it in a tannin solution so say some oak bark boiled up as a tea uh, and stunk the the hide in that and then put it in water that's had rusty nails in it or in the case of prehistory people used iron bearing mud they use ground up ochre anything that has iron in it Uh, will have a chemical reaction with the tannin uh, to create a very dense black a
0: a little bit like um, non- stainless steel does when you're chopping into oak or sweet chestnut or something. I'd imagine you get quite dark colors just from that just from the reaction yes. between the the fluids and the the tannins in the wood and the and the the iron in the metal. Yeah.
1: That's exactly right. Um, you, you hear knife makers dyeing their knife handles using the same concept.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you know, dunking a, an oak handle in rusty water and to that dye you get nice dark wood
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's what's nice is it's a chemically stable color. Black is a really difficult color to get and have it stay put. All your dark colors are. Um, most of your dark colors are tannin based, so black walnut hull, um, all your different barks. You know, anytime you wanna you wanna dye a buckskin much darker brown, you know, things like oak bark or willow bark or alder gives a very red brown. Sometimes, if you mix it with um, alum or urine, you can get a very red red. Hmm. Um, yeah, so there's all kinds of different colors that you, you can dye. Diebuck skin.
0: Um, Yeah, that's fascinating. Hmm.
1: It's nice to see people do it as well, because we have this annoying concept that prehistory was varying shades of grey and brown and nobody brushed their hair. (laughs) And Based on ethnographic examples around the world, this is probably pretty unlikely. And based on the type of art that people left behind, the level of craft skill, um, the focus on things like symmetry in some of the crafts uh, people had an, a sense of aesthetics and the fact that they would not have extended that to their clothing you know well tailored well made clothing as well as you know their personal adornments is pretty nonsensical at the end of the day
0: yeah <laughs> yeah now we have this sort of idea of a stone age person or a, a cave person don't we that this looks like a a sort of scruffy tramp or something and uh, there's no real basis for that is there at all
1: there's no basis for it whatsoever <laughs> i mean good hygiene in the woods as everybody who's been there knows is not just an aesthetic thing no you know it is actually a health issue yeah. so yeah and you know you don't hunt well if you smell like dinner from last night and you're rubbing your fat on your trousers all the time that's just <laughs> none of this is conducive to actually living in an outdoor situation for long periods of time. And this is where a lot of uh, these notions came from, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, people making these dioramas of cave people. Well, it's just, yeah, they didn't have any experience with what, in what was necessary to survive in a very long term living situation. It's not just going camping where you get to get mucky and have fun and come home and then put your clothes in the washing machine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> those clothes had to be washed there. Know, and washing your clothes is, you know, it's a, with buckskins, it is a bit of a time consuming process. You can certainly do it, and it's very effective, but they dry slowly, and, you know, people most likely would have taken some pains to not get that dirty if they could avoid it. You know, there's no real reason why you need to kneel down at a fire in your buckskin trousers when you've looked at the ground and there's charcoal all over right mm, there. Mm. Why would you do that? Toss down a piece of fire put your fire back together and stop being an idiot with your fire that's
0: probably number one yeah I mean it's it's an interest it's an interesting point that you make there because I think a lot of us have come to that same conclusion those of us that spend uh, plenty of time in the woods you know uh, this this year has been a bit of an exception with the whole coronavirus thing but you know normally (laughs) I'd have been in the woods pretty much continuously and you know you don't have endless changes of clothes with you and you don't have necessarily plenty loads and loads of times to be washing you know every other day or twice a week or what have you so you do automatically almost start to avoid getting the fat from your dinner on your trousers or sitting in a muddy bit of ground or you you find a even a small log to put under your bum while you sit cross-legged or whatever and then your trousers don't get dirty and you know that's just stuff that you do and then it makes a big difference and I see it with students you know they come and do a six-day course and if they're not taking particular care of themselves in terms of getting dirty they look like absolute tramps by the end of six days whereas myself and the the other instructors because we just do a few things to stop ourselves getting dirty we look relatively clean compared to them and it, it's just those little things isn't it those little differences all stack up
1: absolutely and I mean just just like there are today when you talk about prehistory there's always going to be people in the group who are dirtier than other people that's <laughs> I mean that's a given children are yeah. probably absolutely <laughs> filthy half the time because you know they're outside and it's fine
0: grotting around Uh, yeah that's right that's That's
1: why you put them in a loincloth and just let them go you're like you're (laughs) easy enough to dunk in the creek your clothing is not so here you are have fun yeah
0: yeah um so in in terms of making the clothing clearly that needs to be sewn um formed into some clothing um now when we did that canoe trip after the gbs last year you were doing some some sewing and that looked quite intricate some of the stuff that you were doing um is are there particularly special ways that you need to to sew buckskin or are there various different ways depending on use cases
1: yes uh ma- mainly sewing buckskin is is dependent on it as a as a material it has very specific characteristics which need to be taken into account like i mentioned the the saggy bums, uh on um, saggy <laughs> knees Buckskin tends to to stretch. It stretches a lot, especially if it's a grain-off buckskin or brain tan or, you know, egg tan, any of your fat tans. They all share this characteristic. So, essentially, your seams hold the garment together. So, they hold it in shape. Your seams are what provide the structural integrity for that garment. So, you want to be thinking about, when you're making clothing with, with buckskin, or any of your fat tans, for that matter. Buckskin tends to be a slang term for brain tan specifically, but it gets used for anything that's a fat tan as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, you want to be thinking about the type of stitching material you use, as well as the seams and the stitches you use in the seams. So the whip stitch, overcast stitch, the one where you go around and around and around, Mm -hmm. is probably the most abused stitch type in the history of leather clothing, at least within our modern history of leather clothing, I think everybody went through the scouts and that was the one they got taught. And <laughs> actually, in terms of clothing in buckskin, it's don't use it. There's almost nowhere where that is the appropriate stitch. <laughs> and the reason for that is because the lace goes around and around, it does nothing to make that seam not stretch lengthwise.
0: Right, okay. It doesn't
1: inhibit the stretch at all.
0: It's like a slinky spring basically creating, isn't it?
1: Precisely, exactly. You've you've created a spiral, which Mm. is not particularly necessary. It's fine for sewing shoe soles onto uppers, things like that. That's great because the shoe sole itself tends to be quite stiff. Mm. So the material itself can deal with that stitch. It doesn't need to be locked into place in the same way. But when you're talking about very soft shirts, trousers, you know, vest tops, tank tops, uh, coats, things like that, um, then you you don't really necessarily want to be using that stitch. Now, the exception to that tends to be fur. Fur is almost always sewn with a whip stitch. It's really the only way to do it where your seams don't show to the to the fur on the other side. However, this is less of a problem with fur because by the nature of fur, the grain layer is intact.
0: It's a stiffer, so stiffer layer, material.
1: Yeah, the grain layer itself yeah. inhibits the stretch. It still can stretch quite a lot, but not not nearly to the degree that grain off fat hands can stretch. So I always recommend, you know, running stitch is great. That's the over, under, over, under, yeah. Mm-hmm. But better yet is a saddle stitch. So either you use two needles and you go in and out and in and out to so that you have a locking stitch, or you do a running stitch down the seam and then just come back through the opposite holes. That is still a saddle stitch. It's the same stitch, it's just done two different ways.
0: Right, so I think that's yep. what I was watching you do last last year yes. when we were in camp, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, you were watching that. Uh, that, was a, that was a piece of clothing for a documentary that was going to be being filmed in, I can't say a lot about it yet because it's not out yet, but a group of us went to film a documentary in a very rural area of Eastern Europe. Uh, the premise of it was to showcase Stone Age living skills mm. um, in the context of early migrations into Europe, um, sort of at the at the 40,000, 45,000 year ago mark. And that piece of clothing that you saw me sewing was was a piece of clothing for that program. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, everything was... That was my caveat for even being part of the program was that the material types that we used had to be appropriate and applicable to the time period. So everyone's clothing was fat tanned or some small bits of bark tan here and there, even though uh, our evidence for bark tanning, vegetable tanning, going back that far, are pretty shy. The oldest piece of vegetable tan that I can say fairly definitively, is what we would call vegetable tan today uh, actually comes from the bronze age uh, and it was found in england
0: mm, Actually, so, so yeah. relatively recent then
1: relatively recent now mm. i've seen some items that have come out of uh, frozen preservation contexts so retreating uh, ice patches in the alps which have some characteristics that indicate that they have been in contact with a tannin solution they are not Classic vegetable tan. However, they have been in contact, most likely with a tannin solution. And those we're looking at are—you're talking four thousand to five thousand years ago. Hmm. So earlier, but that's still, you know, that's still the calcolithic for the yeah. most part. That's yeah. still the copper age. Yes,
0: yeah. yeah. So why why do you think that is? Is it is is there some correlation with um accessibility to containers in terms of bark tanning?
1: You, uh, Yes and no. Long soak bark tents, so bark tans that need to go in a, a solution and soak for a long period of time, uh, that type of, of setup does require a container. However, a container could be made by just digging a shallow pit in the ground, lining it with a large skin, filling it with your, your solution, and putting other skins in it. Mm. it. It can be done. It's just that that would leave so little trace archaeologically. We find pits all the time in archaeological sites. We have no idea what they were used for 90% of the time. They're just a pit. Mm. <laughs> They're An archaeological feature, as we call it, yeah? Um,
0: yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem with the, the Stone Age, isn't it? The stone artefacts last a long time, whereas many of the others don't.
1: Absolutely, and the stone artefacts, whilst fascinating and wonderful, probably make up about, I oh, don't know, 10%? of the material culture that you would have been seeing produced by that group and professor linda hercomb has uh she's coined a term that is called the missing majority and i think it, it really does sum up that concept quite succinctly
2: mm, so I like that. This,
1: yeah this missing majority is really what defines a culture and we only get the smallest little glimpse of it in cases of very rare organic preservation Um, places like you know these these retreating ice patches and things that have preserved things such as as leather fur sinew bone um any of these organic components wood although we do occasionally have wood from other contexts and bone sometimes survives all right antler sometimes survives all right so we do have a few of these harder elements which do survive
0: yeah am i right in thinking that you and Linda co-authored a paper around some of this a perishability of materials. Did I see that on your CV?
1: Yes, uh, we had a we co-authored a a chapter in a book on archaeological structures okay. and there's types of material, uh, organic materials that would have been being used in them that we probably don't find. Hmm. So it's you know it's one of those chapters about the possibilities, even based on the tiny amount of evidence that we have. So there is, within organic material culture research, there is a lot of extrapolation from, you know, you get these small bits of evidence, and then you have to try and connect the dots in between. And you have to be very careful when doing that, that you make sure that when you talk about it, or that when you publish it, that you explain that these are the bits of evidence The things in between are our idea based on our collective knowledge of these sorts of of skills and um, the archaeology. It's our idea of how they go together, Mm. you know, theory.
0: Yeah, but it it, it seems to me that the more knowledge you have of the uses of those materials in that context, the better you are able to interpret them.
1: I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that if you don't have a good understanding of your material types from a very practical standpoint, then some of the theories you come up with will probably be pretty rubbish.
0: Mm. And is is this one of the reasons why experimental archaeology has come more to the fore because i mean archaeology i I seem to have a picture of archaeologists sort of going off in nice linen suits to you know the mid-east or i don't know north africa a little bit kind of indiana jones style digging things up and not really knowing what they're finding in the past i'm not saying it happens like that now but you know a lot of the stuff in the british museum i i kind of imagine was was kind of found like that
1: A lot of it was. We would tend to call it collecting, less so archaeology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It was not much of a good understanding of um, uh, archaeological excavation technique. Good excavation technique is a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, understanding levels and going down by levels, keeping very, very stringent track of data and where things are found in relation to other things, because this context of a site is so important. I mean, it's more important than any single artifact you find. A single artifact is just a thing.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It doesn't have any context. It's at the end of the day, just art. So, you know, that the history of archeology span definitely does, does suffer from less than ideal archeological excavation, uh, procedures. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: They are getting better and better. Obviously, they get more stringent, and new techniques are introduced all the time. To the point where, you know, we now do we do pollen analysis. There's this phytolithic analysis, giving us so much more information. Uh, protein analysis of of bones, DNA, uh, stromium isotope analysis, things that tell us that this animal actually didn't originate in this place, or this person had actually travelled from, you know, four thousand miles away in southern Europe. Hmm. So there are more and more really detailed ways of looking at the past. Mm -hmm. And what's important is that they all get published so that this large body of knowledge can come together into a a large, to contextualize each other part of that information so that we get a good picture of what's going on as opposed to just any individual little bit of information, Mm. which they're always interesting, of course, but the big picture is really what tells us more about our species and what we were up to
0: yeah and it's and it's fascinating it's 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 a wonderful window into our history um your your phd was specifically looking at skins and skin processing technologies and looking at what evidence there was from the past of how those things were processed can you tell us a little bit about that theresa
1: yes of course. So the PhD I did was, uh, essentially, I came up with a method, a methodology for differentiating, being able to identify the different tannage technologies being used uh, during prehistory based on um, an extant leather artifact, so a piece of of leather which still exists. So, you know, my, my methodology has nothing to do with time periods that are so far back in time that... We don't have any evidence, direct evidence from them, as far as leather goes. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that my methodology currently is useful back to about 10,000 years. That's some of the oldest bits of leather in the world are about 10,000 years old. And all of those pieces are fat tanned and or rawhide. So no vegetable tan that Mm -hmm. I've ever run into yet. Doesn't mean it can't happen, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it just hasn't yet. Um,
0: Um. you know simple question from a person that doesn't know much about this stuff is it possible that the fat tan stuff could last longer
1: interestingly it's the opposite right so depending on the depending on the preservation environment so fat tans in frozen environments and very dry environments including salt mines they preserve very very well however in wet environments, aside from bogs, and bogs are actually not that old. Bogs didn't really start forming until about yeah, sort of four to five thousand. I'm kind of pulling that that number out of the air. It's about four to five thousand years ago
0: in since, Northern since, Europe. Since the most recent ice age,
1: yes, yeah, so yep. well past that even. Yep. I mean, this is this is outside. This is well into the really into the Neolithic. Yep. Okay. So the New Stone Age. Right. Um. And then, you know, you really start getting a lot of things in the Bronze Age because that's one, there's more people uh, and they've decided to throw things into them. But two, there's also just a lot more bogs at Mm. this point in time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So in those kinds of environments, in bogs, you can get preservation of fat tannages. However, the bog colors things and there are tannins and sphagnum moths. So you technically get a bit of an over tannage. So one of the things that my PhD did seek to come up with was, was a way to look at these bog items from a characteristic standpoint. And these leather characteristics are set in place during the item's use life. So what happens to them afterwards, so after they go into their preservation environment, doesn't actually affect most of these characteristics. You can still identify the technology based on that, the artifact, and just ignore the bog profile that you get on top of it. Okay. So it doesn't change the fiber structure. It doesn't change the whole morphology, the shape of the holes, the shape of the edges, things like that, or the thonging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but outside of bogs, if it's a wet environment, uh, fat tan does not last. Right, It rots actually quite quickly. It would be gone in a year. Whereas a solid vegetable tan, this is why we get so much Roman leather actually, is because uh, the Romans were they had industrialized uh, vegetable tanning so they were making large amounts of very full tan meaning that the the skin had large amounts of affixed tannin inside of it now what that means for us archaeologically is that that particular tannage type when dumped in a pond or a wet environment it does not rot it, it's it's basically it will mildew to some degree but bacteria does not break down the collagen structure it's inert, mm. so we get a lot more of it being preserved. So it's more of a preservation bias. Uh, it's not like fat tan just stopped being produced in Northern Europe. That's definitely not the case. However, it doesn't preserve well here right. in most of the most of the environments. Whereas other places in the world, you get loads of it. You know, lots of the the Egyptian artifacts are are fat tans and raw hides, as well as a bit later in time, vegetable tans. A right. uh, lot of the stuff you see in the southwestern U.S., down into the really dry areas of of Mexico. Um, a lot of the stuff coming out of the high Arctic, which you don't think of that as a dry environment, but actually it is. It
0: is, yeah. It's freeze-dried. <laughs>
1: <Yep>. <laughs> freeze-dried, exactly. Yeah. You get fat tans coming out of there.
0: Yeah.
1: And the thing you get at, so, in some places in the Arctic as well, which is interesting, is something that I've termed a short soak or a rub-on vegetable tan. So this is normally done... You tend to see it on reindeer. You do see it on some marine mammal skins as well. But they're, they're skins which have essentially had tannin solutions rubbed on or, or kind of yeah either rubbed on or very, very quickly soaked in them. So you get some level of tannin affixation. They certainly they behave reasonably well like a vegetable tan would. However, their centers don't tend to have much affixed tannin so they're an interesting sort of combination they're then oiled afterward to help with the flexibility um Hmm. and there is a possibility that these sorts of short soak vegetable tans would be the type of tans that maybe didn't preserve as well as uh, the later full veg tans do and perhaps we were getting those in prehistory but we're just not finding them
0: right is that northern eurasia or northern north america or both both it's
1: circumpolar Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so yep that's uh that is a possibility however Mm -hmm. you know when you have really good preservation of fat tans we probably should be getting if we have veg tans in those areas we should be getting those as well right yeah yeah okay now the second reason that you see this this disparity honestly is that um fat tans can be done very quickly in comparison to a vegetable tan, mm-hmm. um, and they weigh less; they're actually lighter in weight mm. than vegetable tan. So perhaps if you're a, if you're mobile people, that this might come into play.
0: Mm.
1: Might be a preference simply based on that.
0: That's interesting. I didn't know that that they were lighter. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm.
1: So fat tans are basically an empty tannage technology. You're adding almost nothing. You're taking away a lot of things in the skin, but you're adding almost nothing back to it. So it weighs very, very little. Mm. Whereas a vegetable tan, you're actually adding tannin, and tannin is a pretty large molecule, and it does actually have an appreciable amount of weight. So one of my uh, sample sets is three reindeer skins. One is a classic fat tan, so grain off. The other is a grain-on fat tan. And then I have one vegetable tan. Uh, all three are very similar in size they're the same sex of animal and they were taken in the same season and people can pick them up to appreciate the difference in weight between the three the two variations of the fat tan and then the the standard vegetable tan mm.
0: that's interesting that's interesting so how, what was the process then with uh, looking at these older samples um were you because i haven't read your phd thesis apology i'm still waiting (laughs) to read your read your book which is imminent um
1: (laughs) no apologies necessary for that no no it's
0: okay (laughs) but so it's apology apologies if some of these questions are slightly obtuse or coming from slightly the wrong angle but in terms of uh, you were doing some comparisons then with skins that you prepared yourself and skins that we're in the archaeological record. Is that right?
1: Yes, correct. You've got it spot on. Right. So I chose six different tannage technologies. Now, uh, Like I said, there's, there's essentially three families of tanning. There's vegetable tan, there's mineral tan, and then there's fat tans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the fourth skin processing technology is rawhide. So that was another one that I covered. So I did rawhide, I did vegetable tan, I did alum tawing, and then I did um, three versions of fat tanning. So I did dry scrape fat tan, wet scrape, brain tan specifically. So wet scrape and dry scrape brain tan using brains. And then I looked at the concept of urine tanning, uh, which by the end of this process, I have just classified as as another fat tan, just with an extra pre-process tucked in there. As uh, characteristically speaking, and chemically speaking, I have trouble differentiating it from any of the others right. other than it's lot harder to work soft um (laughs) so i took these six tannage technologies and i chose 25 at this point 27 different species from north america and uh, northern europe essentially and tanned each of these animals six different ways so it was one animal skin cut into six different pieces uh trying as much as possible to only use the section that came down from the shoulder blades down to the haunches and not using the belly, skin, armpits, those kinds of things, just because this part of the skin is the most similar all the way across it. So it's more comparable between the tannage technologies. Mm-hmm. So I end up with, this a very large sample set. I think I have 158 samples at this point um, where each species is tanned six different ways. And I could go through and I could characterize the different identifiable characteristics that were attributable to each tannage technology and then secondarily I had a whole set of very well used clothing and shoes from not just myself but from other folks in the traditional skills community who were happy to let me take pictures of the edges of the clothing and the thongs and the holes and all of these behavioral characteristics that were individual to each tannage technology as well were put into this. So it came up with this whole set of, of characteristics that belonged to one tannage technology. I could then take these sets of characteristics and apply those to the archaeological originals and say that if this particular artifact had A, B, C, D, and E, then most likely this was a fat tan Mm
2: -hmm. or
1: it had a b and c but it didn't have you know any of the others but then somewhere f pops up and then you're like oh okay well that's interesting well if f is here it has to be vegetable tan because it's a characteristic that does not belong to any of the other ones Mm
0: -hmm. so you're able to discriminate between different techniques by combining those different characteristics and looking for them
1: yes correct Mm -hmm. yeah and some of those characteristics are, yes, edge morphology, the hole morphology, how thong thonging, so the stitching material looks, um, the fibre structure of the skin, the density, um, the grain appearance, um, uh, the fibre shape and size as well of individual fibres within the skin. So this was microscopic as well as macroscopic.
0: And you've done, it seems some i don't know whether you would call it consulting or whether you've looked at particular artifacts since then analysis um of of artifacts and has that been has that been able to take understanding forwards in terms of some of those items so i'm thinking I, i think i saw something about a shoe from norway somewhere
1: yes uh that was actually that particular item was something i looked at during the phd But since then, yes, I've I've done analysis analyses for the Hermitage Museum in Russia, for the Key Bronley Museum in Paris, um, the Israel Museum in in Jerusalem, um, and let's see what others. There's a couple in the UK as well. Um, Having trouble remembering. (laughs) It's the Ashmolean. There we go. I always want to say Pitt Rivers if it's in (laughs) Oxford. It's not Pitt Rivers. It's the Ashmolean. So, yes, uh, I've been doing quite a few of these these analyses for different folks around around the world. Uh, oh, yeah, and the project I'm working on at the moment, I was um, asked to come and do the analysis on some very, very interesting Viking finds Ooh, with the National cool. Museum in, in Copenhagen in Denmark. Cool. And I'm also now doing a replication of those finds for them. So not only have I done the analysis, they've then hired me on to tan the skins with the appropriate technologies and then remake the garments to the best that we, we think what they looked like for the fashioning the Viking Age project, which is a project that's being funded by a grant work for, for the National Museum in Denmark.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A rather varied career here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, and spanning the ages as well.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Start. It's a nice thing about being a technologist, I suppose. Leather is leather.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's lots of different tannage technologies, but not that many. And the products itself, it doesn't really matter until you get into the industrial revolution when we start looking at all sorts of crazy things like chromium and aluminum and Mm. syntax and um, things that are making their way into museums at this point, but they are really truly not my specialty area. Right.
0: Can can you tell us a little bit more about alum? Um, Because that's another one of those words that, people don't always relate to what is it where does it come from particularly in the context of traditional techniques
1: sure so um, alum is it's a product that basically evaporates out of bitumous clay uh, it's the active component is aluminum in it but it's uh, off the top of my head I can't actually remember apologies I can't remember the a breakdown of what alum is. Okay. But it's a tannage technology that you introduce alum and usually salt, as in sodium chloride, into the skin after the pre-processes are done. So once you've defleshed and then if you choose to do the hair off, you can. alum was used for sheepskins quite a lot. So if you've ever heard the term wit-tawing, which is Old English for white tanning, okay. uh, tawing is the term that's specific to alum and alum gives a very white, very soft, very lofty um, sort of tannage. It's really lovely. It's been used for a long time for gloving material. Uh, The downside to alum is that if you wash it, the salt and the alum wash out, and it truly does go back, unlike white brain tan, it does go back to being something pretty unpleasant. So (laughs) not the most useful thing in the whole wide world if you're going to be
0: basically a piece of rawhide is it effectively? yes rawhide? yes yeah. yep okay
1: and if you give me one second I actually have I just turned in my book actually and I have it sat right here and I could just quickly look up so all right so alum it's it's a double mineral salt and it's composed of aluminum and potassium sulfates and it tends to precipitate out of, like I say, those bituminous clays or out of alum shales, uh, and you get it naturally occurring in many warm climates around the world. Right. Uh, you also get it in some places that is, uh, or some places that are not so warm. I believe there was actually an alum mine in the UK. I can't remember where it was
0: though. Hmm. I'll look. I'll look that up. Yeah so that was very kind of area specific then i guess as well where the resources were available and people were aware of how to use them
1: yes and there's quite a lot of indication that alum probably started uh more in the dyeing industry it was used as a mordant so that's something that makes a a dye more fast meaning it doesn't wash out as easily or it changes the color and if you were having, say, you were having fat, tan skins and you were dyeing them and using alum, or even you do get quite a lot of dyed rawhide. I mean, it truly is rawhide, but it's just been dyed uh, in some of the drier areas, of Egypt and, and the Middle East, you, you get dyed rawhide. If you want someone to be using alum as a, as a mordant in that dyeing process, uh, there's a good possibility, you know, they're not idiots, they would notice that the rawhide behaved quite differently after being, if, if it was left in that solution for very long, it didn't really act like rawhide anymore. Right. In fact, suddenly you have a shoe that probably didn't function particularly well.
0: A <laughs> sloppy shoe. Yeah, just, yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, um, didn't hold its shape. Um, can I ask you another question about sewing? And you might not know the answer to this, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts. um, I've seen mention of some archaeological sites having many bone needles, broken bone needles, just sort of in, almost in piles. What are your thoughts on why that is? Do you think, were they breaking them in the process of sewing things? Were they breaking them in the process of making them, the needles themselves?
1: Uh, well, probably both. I mean, honestly, needles are, are quite fiddly to make. Mm-hmm. I will say, if you want to make needles... Drill the eye first, (laughs) then shape the needle around it. Because if you screw the eye up uh, on something that you have not put much work into, then that's fine. (laughs) Um, Bone needles are fairly, they are, they're not, they're not a metal needle. You know, you can't bend them. They don't deal with that very well. However, there's this concept that needles are for sewing. And for us, sewing equals clothing and that's absolutely not necessarily the case needles are used for all kinds of crafts when you're you're living in the outdoors and you don't need a needle to sew it's an efficiency aid it makes things faster however it limits bone needles limit how fine of stitch work you can really do because you can only get them so small mm-hmm. yeah Whereas if you're using things like sinew or intestine, which have some level of rigidity to them as a thread, you really only have to poke a very small hole with an awl, which is a bone tool with a sharp fine point that you use to perforate a hole, push a hole between the fibers of of fat tanned skins, which are very, very lightweight, as we mentioned, and soft. So pushing a bone awl through brain tan is actually very, very easy. And then you just put your thread through the hole. You Mm -hmm. don't need the needle. Mm-hmm. it just yep and, and you can like, do incredibly fine stitch work like what yeah. you see in the arctic where you have you know 20 to 30 stitches in an inch <laughs> yeah
0: on so are you talking about some of the inuit clothing yes yeah
1: yes absolutely it's it's incredibly finely stitched and it's not necessarily done with needles at all mm-hmm. because actually needles don't really lend themselves to that
0: mm-hmm. I, I assume you're familiar with the books and of survival are you
1: Yes, I am. Yeah. And there's another one called Our Boots, which is fantastic as well.
0: Okay. I don't know that one. Our Boots.
1: Our Boots, yep.
0: Okay. Cool. Always, always interested. Even if I can't do that stuff, I'm always interested to look at it. It's it's amazing, the uh, the uh, craftsmanship of, of that stuff. It is. And yeah. it's,
1: you know, when you get up there, it's, it's, It's one of those things. So when you look ethnographically at groups, clothing, is the more temperate the environment gets, the less, not importance is placed on clothing, but there's less functional importance placed on it. It's still very decorative. It's still very much uh, an expression of, of, of personality and of individuality and of the group that you live in, of course. However, from a structural standpoint, if you don't have perfectly tight seams living in the southern great plains you're not going to die whereas in the arctic you know you have double seams because if one seam fails you want a backup
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's there is there are levels of functional need that dictate just how what we consider fancy clothing gets but you know that's not necessarily fancy that might actually be functional
0: yeah so the form follows the function
1: Exactly. And yeah. when we start talking about the Ice Age, which are all these time periods that we have these great pictures of of back to cavemen and their skins that are just kind of hung about themselves right. and tied Tell on them, with yeah. bits of string. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody has ever been to, you know, northern Finland in the middle of the winter, but <laughs> add a massive amount of wind chill to it, that's what we're talking about in yeah. the Ice Age.
2: Yeah.
1: So... try that just tying some skins around yourself yeah you could probably go stand out there for a while but then you need to gather you need to hunt you need to construct tents you need to live that is not a functional clothing type for that environment no and so it's just one more of those nails in the coffin for this concept of you know raggedy clothed cavemen without Mm. brushing their hair yeah
0: well i think it suited i think it suited the um the time, didn't it, in terms of characterising modern humans as more sophisticated Supervised. and more advanced and our prehistoric ancestors as brutish and rough and not as intelligent and all of that nonsense. So,
1: Yes, absolutely. That yeah. sort of um, cultural hierarchy where it has to be linear, where we have to come from one place and be moving in some sort of upward trajectory towards yes. some undefined eventual goal.
0: Mm. Indeed well I think we've had quite a few interesting questions as a result of some of the uh, recent uh, enforced changes to the way society is operating so it's uh, it's been quite good and <laughs> been quite good in that sense people have been questioning what's important and what isn't so um, and that's all good what why do you think um, because you often see you know brain tanning described as an almost lost, method of production of leather you you, see, you know and that maybe that's just coming from an ignorant point of view but why do you think people moved away from this being just so important in people's lives was it just was it just woven textiles from plant materials what what caused a shift was it warming climate
1: well i mean up until i mean even in europe uh buff coats as a part of the armor were a thing that was used clear into you know the 1700s mm-hmm. and 1800s this it's not it's not something that's gone away um, in most parts of the world where people live more traditionally uh, fat tans are still a big part of daily life in many areas um, why you see people move away from it to some degree in in later time periods so we're talking about the medieval things like that are probably to do with the industrialization of the industry. So you can mm-hmm. now buy it as opposed to and, and brain tan fat tanning is actually it's somewhat difficult to industrialize. It could it's not that it couldn't be done, it very much could, but it never has been. With the exception of chamois tanning. You mm. know, the stuff that you use to wash your car with. And that's split sheepskins for the most part.
0: And you said that's um, done with fish oils, did you say?
1: It is, yeah, right. cod oil for the um, most part. Yeah. Um, um so when you when you see you do see a, a lessened reliance on leather clothing in places like northern europe and honestly in places like uh the middle east as well when you see cloth clothing coming in now cloth clothing what you have to understand is it must be performing a job better than what the previous product did and in a hot dry environment I can see that being the case where you know airy clothing that breathes more efficiently than than any kind of leather does would probably be preferable in a lot of those environments uh, it's certainly not from a work standpoint because I can make a pair of brain tan clothing in about a quarter of the time that it would take to produce a similar set of clothing out of plant material All Right. Um, growing the plants processing the fiber spinning the fiber then weaving the fiber and then making the clothing is an incredibly labor-intensive process that we as modern people are incredibly far removed from Absolutely. with our wonderful walmart yeah you know, t-shirts and really mass-produced clothing yeah you if, you asked, self- if you asked
0: your average person to make a cotton t-shirt they wouldn't know where to start would they
1: so i'm not I'm pretty certain most people can't identify what cotton is let alone yeah yeah <laughs> make anything from it uh yeah so you know there, there this shift isn't going to be just a fashion thing i mean at some point there will have been some of that like oh you know doris over and you know one village over has an amazing knitted mantle and i want to make one great okay cool and then pretty soon everybody has knitted mantles you know instead of a, a sheepskin cape perhaps mm. um And there is going to be that aspect because we are human we are talking about the same species we have a lot of the same concepts and mentalities you can sort of um, extrapolate back into history to some degree you have to be careful with that but um it's more to do with the fact that possibly the environment's changed yes so wool clothing when europe became warm and wet in comparison to where it was cold and dry. Cold and dry is a brilliant environment for all of your fat tans and all of your your leather items, Mm -hmm. furs, things like that. Warm and wet, not so much. It's not as conducive to the use of of fat tanned furs and skins. Suddenly you find that vegetable tan comes that, in my opinion, that's possibly where you start seeing, you know, vegetable tan. Because it's a much longer process, there needs to be a reason to do it. And perhaps that was their reason was that that particular tannage technology now functioned better in this environment, which was becoming more of the norm in these areas
0: mm. and I guess as people became pastoralists as well, they had more access to wool
1: yes, absolutely yeah, yeah. but we have we have woven clothing from things like like linen and um and even before that nettle
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah which which
0: predate wool so yeah yeah sure sure but I'm I'm just thinking in before we started having a bunch of sheep in a field we didn't have as much wool easily accessible
1: yes absolutely I yeah, yeah. will just exist yeah.
0: yeah 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 even if we knew what to do with it when we got hold of it maybe there wasn't so much of it around no it's just interesting to see how all these things interplay or at least speculate about how they might have interplayed so
1: absolutely it is yeah. it's and, you know, a lot of it, again, is that we only have very small amounts of archaeological evidence, and then we're just trying to draw the dots in between. And then mm. what's fun about science, though, and that's what I love about being in academia, about science, is that every time you get a new new item turning up, you get to rethink your theory. Mm. Cause that's what theories are. They're not, you know, it's not a religion. This isn't a belief. This is, okay, <laughs> this doesn't fit anymore. This dot, the lines between these dots don't work because mean, now we've got another dot that's clear up here. So, okay, you mean, great. You mean
0: you're allowed to change your mind in science?
1: Absolutely. You better <laughs> change your mind in science. If you get stuck in a paradigm, then you're in trouble.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people don't get that, though, do they? It's like
1: No, no. Actually, I, I hear people get very frustrated. They're like, I, I can't keep up with it because it's changing all of the time. Yeah. Like, well, that is that is the nature of science. That was that's what makes it science.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Strong. You have a strongly held belief until you've got some more evidence to change that. To change yep. that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And I, I, it's, it, I think it sounds like a wonderful time w- with access to a greater number of scientific techniques. As you were saying, you know, the isotope analysis and the DNA. Uh, the way that DNA um, analysis has brought things forwards in recent years it must be a absolutely fascinating time to be involved in archaeology
1: it is it is it's a it's interesting because it's a fascinating time to be involved in it because of the the scientific um advancements that are really giving us a much more nuanced picture of the past however it's also one of those time periods where um the powers that be are perhaps not funding some of what are considered social sciences as heavily so you have very very qualified people all of which are competing for the same uh grant money which is becoming less and less available mm. so you know there's a little bit two sides of the scale right there but you know that a lot of those sorts of funding issues are political in nature and you know, they change so everybody just kind of crosses their fingers and hopes that Somewhere along the line that they become a priority again.
0: Yeah, they go in cycles, don't they? They do. And so you're, let me get your title correct, you're an honorary fellow at Yes, Exeter. I'm an honorary
1: research fellow with the University of Exeter. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, so I teach occasionally for the experimental archaeology program a couple of times a year, but I am not employed by the university. Mm -hmm. It is an honorary title. Um, It allows me to use the university's name um, and be associated with the research community here.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And it also gives me access, and this is probably the really important thing for me, to all of the library resources and all of the online journal resources. Mm. So I I am an independent consultant, and I work completely off of my own business at this point, which is called Traditional Leather. Mm-hmm. which is easy enough to find at this point. I have a website that's uh, teresaemrick.com mm-hmm. easy peasy, um, which gives the scope of the services I offer. So everything from actual hands-on courses through to microscopic analysis for traditional museums, um, demonstrations of traditional living skills for open-air museums, mm-hmm. and right through to custom clothing, which I take on a very, very limited number of consignments <laughs> per year yes
0: time consuming
1: very time consuming and you know it, it takes the right kind of person who understands uh the process that this kind of thing goes through to have it land on their doorstep um to make it worth the money that's charged in the nicest possible way
0: <laughs> uh, well that's that's the thing isn't it you know again we we talking about how Clothing production has been industrialised and, you know, just general production has been industrialised and you find the least cost means of production. And then when you have something that's handmade by somebody who lives in the same country and is um, basically um, trying to earn a living to the same standard of living as everyone else in the same country as you are, they're surprised at how expensive something can be.
1: (laughs) Quite, yes. I mean, once once it's explained that things like, you know, a a skin takes say the skins for one shirt you need four skins so four deer skins you're you're talking about a solid week of tanning and then at least a week if not a bit more of uh, between smoking and making all of the stitching material and then the the stitching as well so when you talk about two and a half weeks of solid work for a shirt you know one long sleeve shirt it's like well okay so I am a doctor, I'm a specialist in this field, what would you expect someone in that kind of level of academia or a level of career to make in two and a half weeks? And mm-hmm. so if you can put it in terms of time, sometimes it makes it a little bit more accessible as to, to understanding why the cost is there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes sense, makes sense. I mean, I've had similar discussions with you know knife makers, even but also all sorts of people who you know it's very time intensive you can't speed the process up, and um that you know it's 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 just weeks of someone's time it's it's going to end up being a reasonable amount of money, yeah, and so it should exactly. be exactly so it should yes, be.
1: and it should be at the end of the day. this is not a t shirt from Walmart no. <laughs> this is a custom made piece of clothing it's beautiful it's made specifically for you and it incorporates a skill set that's taken an entire lifetime to master
0: exactly I, I think it was Picasso who um he did a sketch for somebody and then they asked how much it would be and I can't remember the figure that he quoted but it was quite a lot of money and the person said well it took you 15 minutes and he goes no it took me all my life to do that you know because it's the skill set that gets you to that point to be able to do it in 15 minutes.
1: Right, exactly, exactly.
0: (laughs) And it's a point that's often lost on people. Um, So again, a lot of effort um PhDs but also books I know you probably don't want to talk about it because I I do I am friends with you on Facebook (laughs) and I have followed the progress somewhat uh, with you posting you know revisions and looking at manuscripts and I know you've recently wanted to not be anywhere near a computer or a manuscript but um I I believe I believe you are pretty much there with your book Am, am I right in thinking that?
1: Yes, you are correct. Actually it just became available for purchase yesterday. Oh, so,
0: Perfect timing.
1: Yeah, quite. And it's, we didn't uh, even we didn't
0: even try to, to time it that you know that, that well, did we? We just sort of got No, in- <laughs> no.
1: I actually I actually thought it was coming out next week, but right. uh, no, it's the fourth, so yesterday. So yeah. Um my book is titled Determining Prehistoric Skin Processing Technologies. It's the macro and microscopic characteristics of experimental samples. And it's available through Sidestone Press. Um, there are links on both my website and my Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is, is traditional underscore leather. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy enough to find. However, it is not... I do have to put a caveat in here. It is not a how-to guide. It's not about how to tan. However, if you have a, a reasonably basic understanding of tanning, Chapter 4 would get you a lot further along. Right. Um, the rest of it is really a history of prehistoric tanning it's really understanding the decision-making process of deciding what tannage technology to use for what item as well as the characteristics of the different tannage technologies and then how that's then applied to identifying those tannage technologies in um, a museum situation where you're actually analyzing artifacts Um, there's also a, a large section on in chapter three hated chapter three but it's very interesting for most people um <laughs> it's all of the faunal selection so all of the animal selection so every single species that i chose had to be gone through and i had to make a case for why each one is economically important in the time period so it does go into a lot of um animal behavior the hunting that was done different types of hunting um in different parts of the world for that animal uh, it's a lot of for people who are into hunting into outdoor stuff there will be stuff in that chapter that's actually quite quite right. interesting you've, you've so already sold, you've already sold
0: it to me on multiple times over with just a couple of chapters so yeah.
2: <laughs> well, fantastic
0: <laughs> that's wonderful and so i will link to all of those things there will be a there'll be a page um dedicated to this podcast on my blog and all of the links that you've mentioned to your website to your instagram to your book um we'll all be on there for people to be able to find are there any other places that people can connect with you on the interwebs or is it mainly your site uh and um your traditional leather instagram that are the main places to connect with you
1: yeah they're the main ones i mean i do have a facebook page as well but i uh started out as a personal page, but at this point, it's really just work.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've all got one of those, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then, you know, my, my email, you can you can email me via my website. Fair no, enough. Probably. Yeah,
0: don't, don't give your email out.
1: <laughs> no. no, I no. shan't. If you, no. Want to, if you want to go to the website and find my email and you have a specific question, then I am happy to answer it. Please do not send me the question that makes me bang my head against the wall which is, can you tell me how to tan, please?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, yes. they should have a good idea from the conversation that we've we've just had. One other question that I had, which might be a good place to finish off in that context, is um, you mentioned uh, you've done a lot of open-air museum teaching and event teaching, things like Rabbit Stick and various other places. Are there common questions that you just are asked repeatedly that, would stand up to being answered here, so that people don't have to ask you individually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, they they vary by they vary quite a lot by the group, actually. So mm-hmm. when I'm teaching it a when I'm teaching it a primitive skills event, a traditional living skills event, like rabbit stick or alvne derech uh, in Israel or any of those, they're very much their hands on courses. So people in my classes are there to go from. The very basic step A, all the way through to the finished product. So, you know, I can get any kind of question under the sun in those courses. I guess maybe one that pops up quite a lot, and it actually pops up from the general public as well, is, so at what point do we chew skin soft? Uh We're not putting the skin in our mouth. Never, ever. This is one of those crazy, weird things that has gotten repeated over and over and over until it's become fact. It is not. It's not that you can't chew a skin soft. It's just an incredibly inefficient way to go about it. And there is ethnographic documentation of people softening edges of muckluck soles in the Arctic, of sucking bird fat off of the skin again in the Arctic, or of softening hard spots in a skin using their teeth. But as a general rule, this is not a thing. Mm. No one chooses skin soft. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, not not to mention probably the amount of bacteria you might introduce into your. System. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Oh, and when you think about a uh, so say a subboreal sort of environment, people are needing thirty to forty skins a year for a family. Yeah. So there's actually not a physical way you could chew that many skins soft a year you would have no teeth by the time you were 15 (laughs) it's just and and people did live into their 50s and 60s and in not everyone but you know there's certainly certainly plenty of examples of it and they still had some of their teeth (laughs) they definitely still had some of their teeth
0: (laughs) (laughs) right so no chewing skins that's a big one
1: no chewing skins no Uh um That and the the continual thing of people assuming you need to rot skins, that that hide tanning is going to smell bad. Right. Hide tanning got a bad reputation for smelling rather strong when it became more industrialized, when it's centralized in one area of town. Suddenly you have huge amounts of what is putrescible animal matter. You know, the stuff being defleshed from it. All of this stuff concentrated in one area. Mm. Yeah. It's going to start to
0: stink. Yeah. it's going to reek. Isn't that? absolutely? You've just you've just you've just pinged a, a, something in the memory banks there of a documentary. It might have even been a travel documentary I watched years ago. Would it have been somewhere like Morocco or Algeria, where there's a massive tannery that just absolutely honks? Like just it's, yeah,
1: Morocco is the classic one. That right. is, I mean, they do produce skins for sale, but a, a large portion of what they do there actually now, at this point, they do make quite a bit of money from just the tourist trade coming to see it because it's colourful and it's memorable. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when you tan it home, just don't let stuff rot. Right. Plain and simple. It doesn't really smell. In fact, if it really stinks, you're doing it wrong. Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's good. That's a good myth to dispel as well, I think, because people are put off by it, I think, just thinking they're going to have this sort of sloppy, smelly, half-rotten thing in flobbing around and yeah. Yeah. So I think that's
1: absolutely, absolutely. And you know, people, everybody's heard about using urine, they've heard about using dog feces and pigeon feces. And Again, this is all industrial age tanning. They're using, they're using the feces to um, utilize an enzyme that actually comes from the pancreas. It's still used commercially in commercial tanning, but it's now synthesized. So it doesn't come from poo anymore. Mm. Helps break down uh, elastin and keratin and the grain layer of the skin. Um, which means that the skin can expand slightly. So each skin ends up a little bit bigger. Now this is important on an industrial level because you sell skin by the square foot. Right. So slightly larger, you make more money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: None of this is really particularly necessary when you're doing uh, you know, small scale um, traditional type tanning. So, you don't have to use any of these really smelly processes. You really don't.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the other, I think, the other myth that's worthwhile to dispel right now is that you are not physically capable of tanning a skin. Everybody kind of lathers on about how hard it is to tan skins, and yes, it is. It is a physically demanding skill. However, I have had a ten-year-old successfully tan a deer skin in my course and he did not have any help from anybody Mm -hmm. he did a fantastic job um you know i have i have had elderly men and tiny women it's all about understanding the process being efficient using your body efficiently not just brute forcing it a little bit like doing a bow drill fire you know if you you get a big old dude who can just go at it and he gets it and makes it work right yeah. but if you just learn the technique well um then anybody can make it work
0: mm-hmm. no that's a good point and actually one thing i was going to come back to that i didn't um because we've talked about so much other fascinating stuff which was kind of core to the conversation was that you mentioned you taught at a martial arts school and i guess um i also used to teach uh jiu-jitsu and i also studied Wing Chun Kung Fu for many years. Um, It's often smaller people and whether they're male or female who get better technique sooner because they're not just brute strengthening it.
1: Right, yeah, they can't get away with poor technique. Yes. So it becomes muscle memory more quickly because they have a, you know, it's reinforced rather quickly that the technique did not work in the way they were using it. Yes.
0: They have to make, they have to, well, their technique just has to be better rather than just being able to pick somebody up you have to so it's, it's interesting right, you
1: gotta get the slow, you need to pivot properly you need to mm. be grounded get yeah, all those things yeah
0: mm-hmm. spot on yeah so it it carries across that mentality doesn't it and i, I see it with bow drill absolutely and i also yeah i completely recognize it in what you're saying with respect to to tanning as well that it's about good technique applied properly
1: yes yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah. and i mean you hear a lot about transferable skills and i think some of these more ephemeral concepts also fall under that that transferable skill set just understanding that technique is important that in and of itself is a very transferable skill <laughs>
0: absolutely yeah all the meta all the meta stuff around anything that we might do that's practical yeah absolutely good well i think that's a nice place to finish
1: i, I think, think so as well yeah. wonderful that, well, that was, was- that was great. Thank yeah, you, Paul. No,
0: Thank you, Teresa. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know you've probably wanted to be outside working on some hides rather than being in front of a computer or a phone after uh, working on your book for so long. But um, thank you for taking the time out this afternoon to, uh, to speak with me. And I'm sure the listeners will find this very interesting. I certainly learned stuff and I'm sure everyone listening will have done as well and i would love for people to let you know as well so that they know how to contact you the links will all be on my site and i'm sure they can google you and find you as well and so i hope hopefully you hear from from people as well and they'll let you know that this was useful and hopefully they buy your book as well um
1: yeah fingers crossed that would be fantastic yeah yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely good stuff well thank you so much theresa it's been a pleasure
1: Thank you, Paul. It's been it's been a very enjoyable conversation, absolutely. And Good. actually, I jumped off of skins to come in here and have the conversation. <laughs> I'm actually covered in deer bits, and I'm going to run back outside now and finish off de some reindeer and membraning a bark tan. <laughs> wonderful.
0: I'm glad you didn't drop your phone in the bucket when, when I was calling you earlier. So. <laughs>
1: no, I was trying to hit the right button, and I'm like, I can't seem to make this work.
0: <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been great. Nice to catch up.
1: Yeah, nice to chat. Yeah. All right, I'll let you go then.
0: Take care. Bye bye.
1: Okay, See cheers. Ya. Bye.
0: Well, thanks again to Teresa for joining me. I hope you found that interesting. I hope you found it enjoyable. I certainly really enjoyed that conversation, or at least enjoyed listening to Teresa talk about tanning with such enthusiasm. It's hard not to get drawn into that. All the links that are mentioned in this podcast can be found on the page on my website dedicated to this episode, which should be found at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 53. And if you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to buy podcasts on your favourite platform. And if you're not already subscribed to my email updates, then please do so via my site at paulcurtley.co. There's a sign-up form on pretty much every single page. As a member of my email tribe, you'll be among the first to know about not only new podcasts, but also new videos and articles on the site. And of course, please do let Teresa know that you enjoyed this. Her social links, etc. are included below as well. It's good to connect people with people that have similar interests or where they can learn and I see this podcast as a key way of doing that, bringing real experts in their field to your ears for your listening pleasure but also for your edification and also potentially for future study as well. Thanks for listening. I look forward to bringing you another Paul Kirtley podcast before too long. Take care, enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy yourselves, keep learning, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers.